The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, this week we're going to uh, begin our journey <clears throat> through the book of 1 John. Um, we're going to take 10 weeks to go through it, um, and we're going to take a little detour next week. If you want, you can turn to uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we're going to take 10 weeks to go through this book, take uh, a half chapter at a time, and we're just going to mine those half chapters for as much gold as we can get out of them, and we still won't get it all out. Uh, we'd have to spend 10 years probably to do that. Um, so we're in, uh, we're in 1 John <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 1. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the, uh, the first four verses together and then talk a little bit about the author because uh, I want to give some context for the book and for our series. If we understand kind of the perspective and the direction that uh, John's coming from, it, it'll help us. So let's read the first four verses together, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, the Apostle John, the author, okay? <clears throat> what was from the beginning, what we have heard, What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So John, the Apostle John, sometimes he's called John the Evangelist, uh, John was the son of Zebedee and Salome. He was born probably between A.D. 10 and A.D. 15, somewhere in that range. He was a fisherman before Jesus called him. I think it's very interesting to see the diversity of men that Jesus called to come accompany him in ministry. You'd expect Jesus to pick all the winners, right? All the people that everyone else would think, Man, that guy's going to be really qualified to go walk around with Jesus and, uh, and do ministry. You know, somebody with a lot of education, somebody that's got a high status in the community. Um, that's not necessarily who he picked. Uh, he picked guys like John that were just kind of blue-collar fishermen, uh, guys that were despised by most people, like tax collectors, like Matthew. So that tells you a lot about Jesus and, and the way he goes about things. Uh, John, his brother James, and Peter clearly make up the inner circle and are the closest friends and confidants of King Jesus. You look through the scriptures, it's clear those three guys were were set apart. Uh, Some evidence for that, in Luke 8, when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, Peter, James, and John, along with her parents, they're the only ones allowed in the room. There's there's something Jesus wants to take these three guys in, he he wants to show them something about the way he does business. Uh, The same three guys are the ones who accompany Jesus in Gethsemane as he suffers the emotional agony of anticipating his torture and death. John is the only disciple at the foot of the cross when Jesus is dying. All the other disciples have fled in fear. John alone stands there, uh, and partially because of that, Jesus entrusts the care of his mother Mary to John uh, during those last moments. He asked John to take care of his mom. Uh, After the resurrection, John and Peter are the first disciples to the tomb, And John is the first to believe the truth that Jesus rose from death. Uh, After Jesus' ascension into heaven and the giving of the mission to go and make disciples, Peter, James, and John 
become what Paul describes in Galatians 2 as pillars of the church. Uh, it's a reference to their vital role as leaders among God's people. There's a distinction where these three guys, Jesus clearly trained them in such a way that when it was time to get the church rolling, when it was time to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave us before he ascended, he said, go into all the earth, make disciples, right? Somehow these three guys, they, they stood up and they, they bore a lot of that load. They were equipped by the master to do that. Um, according to the tradition mentioned by St. Jerome, uh, in the year 95, that's not 1995, okay, Nirvana wasn't playing, this is 95, regular type, right? Nothing in front of it. 95 A.D., uh, John was apprehended and sent to Rome. Would you guys never listen to Nirvana or what are you just trying to be hyper-spiritual? I know you know what smells like teen spirit is. At least you dudes in here, so you can look pious if you'd like. Uh, so John was apprehended. He was sent to Rome, and uh, he was miraculously preserved from death uh, when they, uh, they threw him into a cauldron of boiling oil to attend, uh, attempt to kill him. Uh, and because of this suffering... The title of martyr is often given to him, even though he didn't die. So John survived miraculously being boiled in oil. Uh, unless Jesus made it clear I had more of a mission, I'm not sure I'd want to survive that. However, he did. Uh, the tyrant Domitian banished him then to the Isle of Patmos. They couldn't kill him, uh, so they banished him. And it was during this period on that island that John experienced the visions that he recorded in Revelation. Um, and that was in about the year 96. Upon the death of Domitian, so the guy that was mean to him, wanted to kill him, he dies. John returns to Ephesus, and um, some think he wrote his gospel, the gospel of John on the Isle of Patmos, but it's more commonly believed that he composed that after he returned to Ephesus. Uh, and though some modern scholars quibble over authorship, uh, in total, John wrote five books of the Bible. So he wrote the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Uh, church tradition also holds that John spent his last years in Asia Minor, and, he, and specifically in Ephesus. Uh, he spent his time preaching and pastoring God's people. Because he was in his 90s, he would often be carried to the gatherings, and he would preach very short sermons, sometimes consisting only of the command and phrase, my children love one another. Most church historians agree he died in 100 A.D., and he was the only apostle not successfully put to death for following Jesus. Everyone else was martyred, put to death. They tried to kill John, couldn't do it. Um, the proximity to King Jesus that John enjoyed, along with the clear respect he had as a pillar of the early church, it should add significant weight to the way that we approach his writings. This guy was one of the three closest humans to Jesus when he walked on this earth. He did not run, but he stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus bled and died. And the haters couldn't kill him because Jesus wasn't done having him write books of scripture for us. In short, we should pay close attention to what John says and what he emphasizes. Because his relationship with Jesus was up close and personal. The other way the title for our sermon series makes sense, we've called it Up Close and Personal, is because of John's apparent relationship with those whom he had the responsibility of leading. He does not seem to have the detached, business-like relationship with those that he pastors. It's become very prevalent for some leaders today. All through his writings, he references the reader with very endearing terms. He calls them 
my little children. He goes to give them a command or give them an encouragement. He'll say, my little children, as he's trying to get their attention, and, and he'll call them beloved. His writing reveals a deep affection for his people and a fatherly tone that makes it easier to, to joyously receive a rebuke from him. You know, it's, to me, it's, if I believe someone loves me, it's easier for me when they, if, if they got to hammer me about something. If I know they love me, then I know that they're coming at me out of real care and concern, uh, not, not for some other ulterior motive. And, and the way John writes, you can just tell he, he loves and cares about the people that are gonna, they're gonna read what he's writing. It, uh, he's like Jesus in that. You, you can just tell, you can trust that he has uh, your best interest in mind. And this is the other reason that uh, up close and personal accurately describes what our journey through 1 John will be like. So not only did John have this privileged status with Jesus, but he also, it seemed like what he learned from being with Jesus, he, he then translated to the people that, that he was called to lead. He had a genuine affection for them. It's very clear in the way he wrote to them. Now, I, I hesitate to say that 1 John is my favorite book of the Bible um, because the scriptures are so dynamic and they're so living that you know, in different seasons of life, different portions become more prominent and more helpful. If any of you have any of you experienced that where maybe in a certain portion of your life a passage of scripture was just it was so alive and so vibrant to you and it just it met you right where you're at and then and then later on as you walk some more and you experience more and you you persevere through more with Jesus by his grace you can come back and that scripture can it can hit you in a totally different way right it can help you in a different way and that's the bible is living and it, it it's beautiful like that and so I do hesitate to say that that this is my favorite book of the bible um but I will say this, I feel a very strong affection for St. John for his writings. I also relate to him perhaps more than any other man besides Jesus in the scriptures. He represents an interesting contrast in that uh, he and his brother James, they were nicknamed by Jesus the Sons of Thunder. And that had a lot to do with the fact that they were oftentimes hot-tempered, quick to action, and... Uh, the, the reality is that um, they could be unpredictable at times. And so Jesus called those two guys the sons of thunder. However, he also at the same time writes more forcefully about the supremacy of God's love than anyone else in the scriptures. And he gives the most succinct descriptions of what love really is in all of the scriptures. He spent the last few years of his life when lacking the strength to be able to say all he wanted, saying what he considered most important. Little children love one another. When he didn't have the strength left to say everything that he wanted, he said what he thought was most important to say. And he called us and he called those that he was preaching to then to love one another. And I personally feel compelled by God to pick up where he left off in every way I possibly can to continue to desperately work to convince as many people as possible that if we will love one another like Jesus loved us, that our joy will be full and that God will be glorified. Amen? I want to pick up John's torch. I think, I think he was good at emphasizing first things and what was most important. Um, and really, you pretty much have to respect a guy who was too stubborn for Jesus to die by being boiled in oil, right? I mean, that just says something about what kind of dude you are. Um, so I got a lot of respect for him. Now, that's, that's the backstory on the author. Now, let's, uh, let's go to the text and see what the Lord would speak to us. So, 
Uh, so starting in verse 1, it says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So right off the bat here, I think this is a strong evidence for the continuity of authorship uh, between the, the different books bearing John's name. So uh, we see that John likes to take it to the beginning. Uh, most of you could probably at least remember, some of you could probably quote word for word the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see John has this strong connection, to, and he wants to take you to the beginning. And so why would that be? Why does John, when he begins to start his logical argument to try to convince you of who Jesus is and, and what, what is reality and what we should believe, why does he do that? Well, uh, verse 1 and 2 is John firmly addressing heresies that had begun to rise, especially out of agnostic thinking, agnostic thinking. Uh, when John takes it back to the beginning, it, it's, it's a way of showing equality with God. Because, think about it, we are eternal beings, right? We have a spirit, and that, that spirit is eternal. Actually, we are a spirit, we have a body, and, and we are eternal. We, we will live forever, either with Jesus or not. But we are a spirit, and so we will exist forever. Uh, but the reality is, we are only eternal forward from the point of our conception, God is the only one who is eternal in reverse, which is kind of mind-blowing and hard to think about. However, it's very true. And so that's part of what John is doing when he's, when he's comparing and he's showing you that Jesus is in that same category. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's doing, he's doing so much theological work in one sentence. Sometimes it's easy to miss it. Not only is he saying Jesus is there with God, eternal, from the beginning, so he's telling you he's equal with God. He's also doing work in establishing that there's a difference, that he, that he is God and he was with God. And so he's, he's, showing, he's teaching Trinitarian uh, theology right there. And in and, and just, just a couple sentences, he's pushing back against heresy that was trying to rise up from, from fringe groups uh, that, that were not uh, committed to sticking to the scriptures and the revelation that Jesus had given. And so uh, it's just it's so theologically rich, just a couple verses here. Um, our God has no beginning. It is from our God that everything else has its beginning. We have to remember that. God never began. Everything else came from him. And that's, that's just a good way, for, I think, to start a book. Let's just get it straight right here from the beginning. Here's who God is. Let's get everybody in humble mode. I think that's part of what John's doing here. Let me, let's, let's just get it straight. Here's who we're talking about. The one who never started. And he says in the beginning, just because he's got to try to bring it to a realm of human understanding, right? You, you got to, to a human mind, like it, it had to start somewhere. But, but the reality is God is eternal, totally and, and forever in reverse and forever forward. It's, I, right, yeah. Anybody else jello-brained? Yeah. How could there never be a beginning? How could, how could God just exist in and of himself. He's the, only, he's the only one that has no cause. He himself, his own glory and sovereignty is his cause. It's wonderful. Uh, the end of verse 1 references the word of life. And verse 2 says the life was made manifest. This is a clear reference to the incarnation of Jesus. You can, it can seem here that John's just kind of warming up his pen, but he's saying so much in what he's saying. He's saying that the word of life was made manifest among us. He's letting, he's letting us know that clearly God became a man. 
And so what this is, some of you like, some of you like baby Christmas Jesus best. This is a shout out to Christmas baby Jesus, right? John's saying, let me let you know that the word of life, the eternal one, he was made manifest. He walked among us. And he starts by saying, this is what we've heard. This is what we've seen. This is what we've touched. Let me let you know. This is who God is. And when he says that we have seen and we have touched, this is to establish a couple things, right? So again, just in those few words, he's letting you know something. It's, it's so purposeful. One, the account of the apostles about Jesus is not a myth or a fairy tale. It doesn't belong in the same category as other stories of demigods like Hercules and things of that nature. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is not fanciful. John is clearly establishing that what he believes and what he is declaring to be real that he is an eyewitness to these things. What he's declaring to be true is a result of him being an eyewitness to these things. This is why he's saying it. He's saying, I was there. I saw it. This is real. He was an eyewitness to the life, the words, and the miracles of Jesus. And he's putting everyone on notice that this is not an imaginary story, but these are cold, hard facts. And he's a witness to it. He just wants to let you know. I've seen him. I've heard him. I've spoke with him. I was there. And when the Gnostics started with the nonsense about Jesus only being a spirit, or that he did not resurrect bodily from the dead, but only spiritually, John is saying, in a, in, in complete, he's not leaving any room, he's saying, no, you fools, we heard his voice, we saw him risen with the scars of torture upon his body. Understand this, we touched him, we ate with him. Some people think, they don't understand the significance of some scriptures. Jesus comes in after he's risen from the dead. We'll talk about this next week. He comes in and he says, you guys got something to eat. And he eats a piece of fish in front of them. Some people think, okay, that's, that's cool. You know, Jesus was hungry, he ate some fish. But, but that shows you something of great significance. Do spirits eat fish? No. Jesus rose from the grave bodily. That's why Thomas was able to Put his hand in the side of the master. It's very important because Paul says that we should be pitied if Jesus didn't really rise from the death. All of our faith hangs on that fact. If Jesus came saying, I am the Messiah, I am God, if he gets crucified for that, and he tells him the whole time, go on ahead, do what you're going to do, and three days later, this temple's going to rise again. If he says all that, all these really bold, kind of crazy sounding statements, and then he doesn't rise from the from the grave. It's, it's one of these other conspiracy stories where his body was stolen by the disciples or this other thing happened or he never actually died. If any of that cockamamie stuff is true, we should be pitied for be sitting here listening to a sermon out of these scriptures because it all means nothing. The resurrection is key. And he did rise from death. And that's part of, that's part of what John, again, is emphasizing here. I need you to know I walked with him in his life. I spoke with him in his life. I touched him then, and I touched him afterwards. When he rose from death, victorious over it. In all of John's writing, there's a recurring theme. He makes clear that he is writing to convince the reader of what is real. He's deeply concerned with people being convinced of the truth about Jesus and putting their faith in his finished work. You could ask why. Why is that? He tells us. He tells us here in verse 3. He says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's convinced with that. He's concerned with people knowing the truth so that they can have fellowship with the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. And John has experienced as an eyewitness the insatiable passion of God for his people. If you think about it, he walked with Jesus, seeing his compassion for the hurting and for the broken. He firsthand experienced the perfect love of God through his interaction with Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus was the express image. He, he, he taught what Jesus did, what he said, the way he thought, the way he, he went into a situation. We can know that this is how God himself would think about and handle that situation. So we learn much from the life of Jesus. We see Jesus having great difficulty, if ever, walking by somebody that's struggling without having compassion for them. We learn that God is not the angry dictator he's often depicted to be, but a loving father who cares greatly for his children. Which again, just like the fatherly tone that John takes as he writes the scriptures, should help us to accept from God when he gives us commands and when he brings us rebukes. When God tells me to do something, I know it's because he loves me. When God tells me not to do something, I know it's because he loves me. Because he's a good dad. He's a way better dad than I could ever be. I don't, I don't ever restrict Lucy from doing something because I just, I just have fun stealing joy from her life. That's not it. I want her to experience every single ounce of happiness that she can squeeze out of this life. But when I tell her not to go in the street, even if she thinks that's a super good idea and it looks so fun out there and I've played in all of this grass and it's boring now, but the street, it holds this allure, it holds this mystique. I've not been out there. What does the street feel like? I need to experience that. I, I, need, I need her to trust me, that, that I've shown her that I love her. And when I tell her, baby, don't go in that street, that she'll do that and, and she'll know that it, it's not just because I want to ruin her fun because I want to protect her. And because right now I know what's better for her than she does. And God is always in that position over us. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much college you've got, how much education you've got, how many books you've read. God is still always far and away greater in his thinking and understanding, much more so even in the gap between me and my sweet little Lucy. God knows, and he loves us. We have to start from that. So that, that means when when the scriptures are being taught and something comes across the grid that you don't like, we have to figure out how we're going to deal with that. Do we deal with that as a rebellious child thinking, oh, dad's just trying to ruin my fun? Or, or do we think, hmm, why is it that a good father would, would expect that of me? Obviously, I think the latter would be more helpful. Amen? Amen. From the moment that John came to understand the fullness of the beautiful good news of the gospel, he poured himself out completely for the mission of telling everyone possible that there's hope in Christ. You don't get the sense that John held back. He went, he went deep into his 90s. To, to the point, look, most guys retire from the whole preaching game by the time they have to be carried to the meeting and all they can get out is a sentence. No. He was infused with such passion. It didn't matter that his body was failing. He still had fire in his bones and he's... Boys, come and get me and take me to that meeting because if all I can tell you is to love one another, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it to give you that truth because if you'll, if you'll believe that and if you'll do that, you'll have what James calls the royal law. You'll, you'll have what Paul says fulfills all the other commandments if you'll love one another. 
You're going to hear a lot about that in the next 10 weeks, so I hope you're not tired of it. Because listen, man, I'm just, I'm telling you right now, this is the bottom line. When it comes to Christianity, how to, how to be victorious in this life, how to, how to have joy in this life, it comes down to one of two things. Are you going to be focused on you, or are you going to be focused on God and others? Flat out. You can say I'm oversimplifying it, whatever else, but I'm just telling you, it's not just John that says it. We can go kick it with Peter. We can go to any of Paul's writings when they're given an opportunity. Most importantly, when King Jesus gets the opportunity to say, what's most important? What comes to the top every single time is loving God and loving others. It has, has something to do with our mission here. It's somewhere mixed in there. This, this thought, this, this principle is... It's woven into the very fabric of who we are here at Love City. It's, it's the wind in our sails that keeps us going, pushing to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave us. And so he poured himself out completely for the mission of telling everyone he could there's hope in Christ. And so what is the good news that John was so excited about? You knew this was coming. What is the good news that John is so excited about? I can't tell you the good news without telling you the bad news. Here's the bad news. Every single human, after Adam and Eve fell in sin, every single one of us is separated from God by our sin. That's a bad deal. All of us were hopelessly dead in our sins, separated from God. God is perfect. We are not. We are sinners by nature and choice. So there is a separation. There is a, there's a chasm between us and God that no matter how hard we try to jump, fly, build something to get over it, there is no way in and of ourselves that we can get across that. We cannot reconnect to the God that made us out of our own strength or out of our own works. We cannot undo the imperfection that has stained us. That is why Jesus came. This is, this is the good news John was excited about, that Jesus came, that he lived the perfect life that all of us should but couldn't have. He lived that life. He did it. And then, because of that, he was qualified to stand in our place for our sins. His perfect sinless blood, God saw fit to call justice, him standing in and being sacrificed in our place for our sins, that he could take the punishment all of us deserved. God would look at that and say, that is right. I will call the scales balanced, and I will let people that will put faith in his finished work be counted as righteous along with him. I still can't get over it. I still don't totally understand. The math doesn't add up in my head how Jesus is perfect, does nothing wrong. I do everything wrong, and then Jesus pays the price I should have paid, and all I have to do is trust that that's true, and I get to partake of his righteousness. I get to be counted along with him as clean from sin. What? I, yeah, that's why John was excited. That's why it didn't matter how feeble his body got. He said, boys, come and get me because i gotta, I got to tell somebody. He's still excited. He can't feed himself, but the man wants to get somewhere so he can tell somebody the gospel. It's inspiring. And that is the gospel that, that Jesus came, paid the price, died on the cross, didn't stay dead. He rose from death. And now we don't have to try to work ourselves out of the hole we're in. We can put faith in that finished work of Christ. We can be saved from our sins. We can repent and be forgiven and made clean. It's beautiful. It never gets old. You may be thinking, yeah, but, 
But John got to walk with Jesus, and he saw with his own eyes all that occurred. And that's probably why he was so passionate about sharing the gospel with others. He, he had an advantage we don't have. Let me challenge you with something. Maybe you weren't thinking that, but now that I said it, now you were, because you're sitting there stewing a little bit in the conviction about why you're not as pumped in your 30s as John was in his 90s about Jesus' sacrifice, right? Was everybody there? Hopefully you're feeling a little bit, a little bit of conviction about my excitement level about the gospel. Yes, as I'm preaching it to you, I'm the one that wrote this. I'm feeling it. How distracted I can be from what matters most. How stolen away my affections can be from the God who made me and saved me and loves me more than anyone. It's very easy to happen. And I want to be like John where all of my life is poured out for the sharing and the spreading of this gospel. It is what matters most. It is really, when everything is boiled down, the only thing that matters. So let me challenge you with this. It is no less magnificent, spectacular, miraculous, or glorious when God takes a person dead in sin and makes them alive today than when Jesus did the miracles that he did. It is no less wonderful. It is no less beautiful. And the undeniable proof of the power of Jesus and his gospel to rescue sinners is all around you. This is what the story sermon series was about. This is what community groups is about. It's opportunities for us to open our eyes and to look around and see the undeniable beauty of the salvation of Jesus. The fact that he does in the hearts of men and women what no one else can do. That the change is real, that it's undeniable, and that it's exciting. It should really never get old for us. Luke 15 says that heaven rejoices over every sinner who comes to repentance. And here's the thing. They've been, getting exciting. They've been getting excited about people getting saved for a lot longer than we have. And it seems in the scriptures it's not gotten old for them yet. They're still so excited about the work of salvation. They're still so excited about the flow of grace that has flowed forward through time from the cross of Christ that every single time a broken sinner comes and repents of their sin, heaven stops to take notice and rejoices. And I say, why not join them? I say, why not share in their passion and be a part of it? We can have a hand in. We can be used by the Master to start parties in heaven. Some of you are party starters here on earth. Some, for some of you, that's a good thing. For some of you, that's a bad thing. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm looking up right now. I'm turning away, actually, from everyone. Because I don't want to make eye contact with some of you. However, no, it's good. It's good to be a party starter for Jesus. I'm just saying we can be a part of starting the party in heaven. And it's by sharing this beautiful gospel. And I'm, I'm just saying what is not exciting about that. What is not exciting about people going from death to life, going from brokenness and hopelessness to having the light of the gospel shine through their eyes that they then can go and share with the people that they know. Taking people from a destiny of eternal torment and separation from this God who loves them so much and taking them and giving them the opportunity to spend eternity with him, the lover of their soul. What's not exciting about that? I want to be, I don't, I don't know if I ever want to be 90, but however many years God gives me, I want to be old and crusty and excited about Jesus forever because it's exciting. It doesn't get old. And, and, and some of you, let me, let, me just, let me just be your pastor for a second. Some of you, you, you weary in well-doing. 
Some of you have been in this game a long time. Some of you have been doing this Christian thing a while, and it can, begin, it can begin to get mundane. It can begin to seem monotonous. It can begin to seem, you know, week in, week out, I'm doing the same thing. And so if that's where you're at, if you find that spark and that excitement about what Jesus did and what he's doing, if it's not there, then shake yourself because something's wrong. I'm taking away your excuse. I'm taking away, well, I've just been a Christian a long time. No. So was John. Went to his death excited about his Savior. And so I don't care how long you've been in this. If you're not excited, then, then there's something there. And so sometimes we can just justify ourselves into this catatonic state, almost comatose, where we just go through the motions and, and we feel justified because we haven't gone off the deep end and done something crazy. There, there is no excuse with the depth and the beauty of the Word of God to not be more excited about Jesus tomorrow than I am today. Because as I walk with him, I begin, I continue to see the, the facets of his glory. The more I spend time in his word and I spend time in prayer and I hear his voice, I learn more and more and more about how good he is. It just gets more exciting. Whoever thinks Christianity is boring is because they haven't walked it for real. It's not. This is not a boring life. I'm a part of the most important mission that will ever happen ever in all of eternity. In all the universe, I get to be a part of that. People that would go to hell, going to heaven instead. By grace and mercy. It's beautiful. I'm totally unqualified to, to ever be included in that. But because of Jesus, he pulls me in the game. He lets me play. It's awesome. It's awesome. I, was, I played basketball in middle school. It was a terrible choice. Ryan, shut up. Um, <laughs> don't go ask him for additional stories. I was not good at basketball. Uh, I, in middle school, I was tad on the heavy side, and so not very good at up and down the court. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, my, I, I didn't have the old three-pointer down, and so uh, I think there was five strings on the team, and I was sixth. So um, I didn't get in the game very much, but, man, there was, there was just one time where I got in the – I think we were just blowing the other team away. And so, you know, I get this, like, mercy. Okay, you can go in because it doesn't matter at this point. We're going to win. So, you know, but I'm still, I'm, like, super pumped. You know, you got those tearaway pants. I mean, I'm sure I broke the buttons because I stood up. Boom! I'm in. You know, I'm, 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 like, I'm giving it everything I got, right? And somehow, somehow I get the ball. I don't know how that happened. I think they put a bunch of other fist stringers in, so it was probably, you know, it just, it looked, it Never mind. Any analogy I use is going to be offensive. So um, it just it didn't look good. It was probably very hilarious for everyone that actually knew how to play basketball. So somehow I end up with the ball, and, and I'm, I'm turned away. And I promise you, in my mind, maybe it wasn't really like this. I, I dribbled once, just turn, jumped, and I'm right at the, I'm like right at the top of the, what's the round thing there? Is that the key, you basketballers? Yeah, so I'm right there. I jump up over this guy, and I shoot the ball, and just mm, swish right there. And in the moment, like, I didn't understand until it was going on, but all, everybody in the gym just erupts. Yeah, it's awesome. The cheerleaders, like, make my own cheer. They're like, yeah, go, go Big V. And I'm like, yes, everyone thinks I'm great. I mean, years later, I realized that all of this was at my expense, and they were, they were really making fun of me. And the fact that everyone erupted because I made one basket meant I was really not that good, and it was something, you know, close to a miracle. But the bottom line is, like, I was just so excited to be in the game. They let me in the game. I had no business in the game. I shouldn't have been on the basketball team. I'm telling you right now. I shouldn't have. I, I, I sh 
The powerlifting team, maybe. That's only because of, of how much weight I had, you know. But I couldn't do chorus, and I'm like, well, what the heck, we'll try basketball. And it, it was bad. But because of mercy, one day they let me in. And uh, it was really exciting. And you know what? As unqualified as I was to be on that basketball court, I, I'm, I'm just incredibly much less qualified to be allowed to be a servant of, of, of a king so perfect as Jesus, of a father so loving as our God. And we need to all kind of realize that, that we're in that spot. And the very fact that we're led in is by mercy because we, we didn't deserve it. And I don't, care, I don't care if you've been just a peach your whole life. And some of you, that's your struggle. And I said this during the stories sermon series. I don't normally reference past series as much in a, in a current series, but it just, it, it, honestly, it was so, such a dynamic series for our church. And I'm, I'm still just, I can't get over how excited I am that uh, we got the opportunity to, to see the, the work of Jesus. And, and I get reports all the time out of community groups about how what we're doing in community groups, it's working. Like people are having real, authentic relationships. Community is being built. People are praying for each other and getting past the surface level, you know, junk and really trusting each other. And, and it's blessing me. And, and I want to thank you for that. But um, from, our, from our story sermon series, um, it was just, it was beautiful to see the, the variety of stories that we had, but one thing I hear sometimes is people that they kind of grew up, either they grew up in church, they grew up with Christian parents, and they, you know, maybe they never had a rebellious stage, or even if they did, it was still just like so low level that people will say things like, well, I don't, I don't really have a testimony, because they're not like this dynamic, you know, lightning struck point where I know that God saved me, and just kind of like, I just, I remember just walking with Jesus since I was a kid, and like, there's not this point, I didn't, you know, I didn't go out and, you know, murder 25 people or, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a, a thief. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't struggle with addictions for years. And so I don't, I don't have this like beautiful redemption story. Can I please just speak to you? Can you need to hear me? Your, your story is incredibly powerful. And here's why, because you are the one most prone to be shackled with pride. You are the one most prone to be, to be hoodwinked by the sin that gets most men and women. Because you'd be the one most prone to think that you deserve to be in this. You'd be the one most prone to think that, be, to struggle to even understand why you would need a savior. And if so, the vibrant truth of the gospel has really arrested your heart. And you have one of those, I don't really have a testimony, testimonies. I need you to understand, you have the greatest testimony of all. That was the problem with the Pharisees. The guys that really ticked Jesus off, they thought they deserved to be one of God's people. And the great struggle that people have that maybe didn't have a, a testimony like me or some of the other people here where they're like, it was just so wretchedly nasty that it, it was very clear that God came and did something miraculous. Um, for those of you that it was just kind of, I just, I don't even know when, I don't even know when my heart changed. I just, I've always, I've always walked with the Lord. My parents were Christians and there's no just distinct moment, you had the greatest propensity, the greatest tendency and potential to be pulled into self-justification and pride and the lie of the enemy. And if you're not there today, that's an incredible testimony. And you should share that with as many people as possible. Is that okay? Okay. It's easy. Those of us that were bad, 
Real bad? It's easy. <laughs> yes, Jesus saved me. I was bad, <laughs> right? It's an incredible testimony to be, be pretty good by cultural standards, but still be vibrantly aware of your need for a Savior. It's, it's, that's a beautiful testimony. That means Jesus didn't, didn't just leave you to your own and you weren't, you weren't sucked into pride and blinded by it. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. John was right there with Jesus for some of the most amazing moments in his life and ministry. But I don't believe that is the primary source of his passion for people getting the gospel. You know, we kind of said that, you know, some of us could be, we could have a little bit of attitude and think, well, yeah, of course I'm not as passionate as John was. He was sitting around the campfire with Jesus. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. He was in Gethsemane with Jesus. He stood at the foot of the cross with Jesus. He went and, he went and looked at the empty tomb. He, he got to see him resurrected. Like, of course I'm not as passionate. And I don't, first of all, I don't buy that, and we already talked about why. The next thing is that I don't even think that was John's main motivator. I think his main motivator is revealed to us in verse 4. And here's what it says. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He knew that serving God and serving others is where his joy would be complete. He just was convinced of that truth. And that is probably the hardest one for us to get, honestly. Because every other message in our culture is contrary to that. Every other message that our culture is selling you through marketing or whatever else it is, is that the way to happiness is for you to focus on you. Get yours. It's all about you. Get rich or die trying, right? That's the great gospel of our culture. The giggles came loudest from the 50 Cent fans, right? The great prophet of the land, 50 Cent. It's not true. I'm telling you right now, it's not true. I wish I could get a bunch of rich, depressed people in here to tell you. The hole in your heart's not filled with that money. It just can't do it. It never will. The success, the power, the prestige, it can't, it can't fill your heart like God does. I talked with someone recently, and uh, I, started, I was pushing them because we, we, we were talking, we were talking about life decisions, things of that nature, and it kind of seemed like we were running around the mulberry bush a little bit, and so I started, honestly, to get a little bit frustrated, and I just said, look, man, what, what do you want out of life? I mean, I mean, what the heck are you doing? And his answer to me was, uh, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. And, and in one way or another, whether we have the specifics of what we think that means or not, for most of us, that does come down to the bottom line. I just want to be happy. There's a different picture in each of your heads for what that looks like, but that does seem to be a base desire of most human beings. And here's what I need you to hear. Here's what I need you to understand. When you say, I just want to be happy, please be convinced of this. So does God. So does God, dear ones. Hear me. You want to be happy? God wants you to be happy, yes. But we need to understand that oftentimes what is in the mind of God when he looks at that is going to be different than what's in our minds. And we must be convinced that what's in his mind about it is more of what reality is than what's in our mind. 
Because we can be convinced that if we had certain things, happiness would abound. And it may not be true. God knows. God knows that selfishness and self-centeredness will never, ever get you to happiness. You'll not have joy being selfish and self-centered. You may have spurts of what could be called satisfaction, but you will not have that deep sense of joy and happiness that you're yearning for. Living life for his glory, fulfilling his purpose, and accomplishing his mission is what you were made for. And it's the only way that your joy is going to be complete. That is the truth. You must decide whether or not you're going to buy that. Whether or not you're going to accept it. We are all out here trying to make it happen, trying to get happy. The scriptures have been standing here all along saying, here's the path. Trust God. Know that he loves you. Do what he made you to do. That's where joy will be made complete. That's what John was about. That's why he was motivated all the way up to his death. He was happy. He wasn't begrudging his work for the gospel. It wasn't this burden that he bore. I can just imagine his 90-year-old frail frame waiting anxiously for the, the young guys to come grab him and bring him to the service. Excited to let somebody know how good Jesus is. Amen? Amen. I want to be excited like that for all my life. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge of the Apostle John's life. Thank you, Lord God, that I can look at the way he lived, the way he clearly thought, his, his seeming, this, the level to which his life was consumed by love for you. Lord, help me to be convinced that my joy will be made complete in being a part of your purpose and your will in the earth. Lord, to know that you would use someone like me, that you would even let me utter the beautiful good news of the gospel, that you would let that sacred good news come out of this mouth, Lord, it blows my mind. I'm so thankful for it. Lord, let us please live like this. Let us have a gratitude for even being led in the game. Let us be excited, Lord, that you saw fit to draw us out of darkness and bring us into light and to give us a mission and a purpose above and beyond ourselves and our own gain. Thank you, Lord. I don't need to wake up any morning and feel hopelessness and feel confusion about what the point of life is, but I, I have it clearly laid before me. I know what it is I was made to do. I was made for you. I was made for your glory, for your purpose, for your mission. Let me have great joy in that, Father. Let me not treat it as a burden. Forgive me for every time that I have, please, Lord. When I've acted like walking with you somehow harder than being chained up in sin, please forgive me for when I've forgotten how dark it was without you. And forgive me for the times, Lord, when I let anything else come in and seem as if it's more important than helping others get out of that darkness, get out of those chains. We repent now as a church, Lord, for our lack of excitement. If we are not thrilled every day just to be a Christian, just to be counted among your people, Lord, please let us remember that's, there's something wrong. 
Help us, Lord, by your spirit to shake ourselves, to check ourselves, to not get into a monotonous routine. And Lord, may our fire and our passion for you, may it be contagious. May it cause curiosity in those around us, opening up doors and hearts for us to share the good news of the gospel. Please, Lord, help us in this because we're prone not to do very good at it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.